0: Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Rev. Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Christmas lectionary. Our celebrated guests this week are the thoughtful Kenji Kuramitsu, who is a spiritual care and mental health professional living in Chicago, Illinois. Kenji enjoys gardening, traveling, and is a longtime member of St. Paul and the Redeemer Episcopal Church in the Hyde Park, Kenwood neighborhood the Reverend Luce Montes, who serves as the Associate Rector at Trinity Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. Luce is passionate about sharing God's love and making our world a mere just place to live. And last but not least, the insightful Cody Ingle, who lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota with his partner, Josh. He is a Senior Research and Evaluation Specialist at Lost and Found and is passionate about health equity in the LGBTQIA plus and two-spirit community. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on Prophetic Voices. I know our listeners love to hear everybody's thoughts. What's important to keep in mind this year for Christmas?
1: Just to share a little bit about uh, what we do liturgically and and overall in the church and in our world. But I think For me, what I'm what I'm trying to hold on to as we prepare for Advent and Christmas is to think of our current realities and what is happening in our world, in our lives, to be responsible with the way we preach, with the way we speak about God to others.
2: Hmm. I think also for me, like what's really important to keep in mind for this Christmas and thinking about Advent and that whole idea of hope and how we give that message to the people that we interact with on a daily basis, Advent and Christmas being this idea of hoping and waiting and longing for something to come and how, how are we helping others who might feel they don't have that hope or might feel that they've lost that hope um, is something I often think about during this time too.
3: A great question, Shaniqua. I appreciate what folks have shared so far, and just want to join with Cody about this idea of longing and how much Advent and Christmas are about being in right relationship with desire, with longing, with hope, with the strains, as Luce said, that are being felt so acutely across the world, and how do we preach or how do we liturgically engage Christmas in a way that Will serve folks who are coming to service once a year, as well as folks for whom these passages, these stories will be already very familiar.
0: Hmm. So, what liturgical ideas do you have for celebrating Christmas?
1: I don't have to make some of those big decisions because I'm not the rector serving at a church. So, that's kind of (laughs) for me a nice way to kind of go into this conversation and also prepare for Christmas is that I don't have to. Make these huge things. But I think liturgically, just thinking of ways to meditate and also see what's out there, all the resources available to us. That's kind of what I've been at least focusing in my area and what I'm responsible for is finding resources that, that are doable or that are also just diverse in what they're offering.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think preparing to liturgically engage Christmas in an intergenerational way in a way celebrating of human diversity. Hmm. Maybe specifically to think about age for a moment, it's often a time we have children's voices, pageants, this kind of thing. But at a service we had recently in the setting I serve on Sundays, there was a children's choir followed by one of the oldest members of our congregation doing some readings. And the juxtaposition of those voices next to each other in that way, I think is something that would be meaningful to engage as a Christmas service for folks who are making liturgical decisions about music, about liturgy.
1: I didn't even think about the music. I think it also varies by your context, right? Like growing up, you know, we have like songs about un pesebre, or like the birth of Christ. But these are some very major decisions for some folks. And I know that they're very meaningful, right? And for others of us, I'm very flexible with that, I guess, in thinking of liturgy and music. But now, you know, as I heard Kenji, I'm thinking of like our choir master, who, you know, is very like careful when picking uh, hymns and as we prepare for each season.
2: Yeah, I was gonna, I had a similar thought. As somebody who is not, actively involved in liturgical ideas at all, um, I think as somebody who maybe is attending or like what I have attended in the past is, again, that idea of the the connection of things, how things flow into one another, the overall story um, is something that was really important to me and, and was important to me as I was attending liturgical services or other services.
0: Some folks do like a like maybe they have their, quote unquote, midnight mass. Let's say it's at 10 p.m. They do like a sing along from 930 to 10 as they just play Christmas music and everybody sings along. I always like to give something out, you know, when you have a celebration like that. And so especially for new folks. So one year we did like Christmas cookies. So as you know, everybody leaves and they shake your hand or whatever. We have like a plate of cookies. People can take some or candy canes. The Indian church that I serve, they have actually Santa comes and brings like little gift bags for the kids, complete with like his eyebrows being white because he puts toothpaste on his eyebrow. Like it's the whole thing. And I remember bringing in a guest last year who was Latino when he was like, Papa Noel, Papa Noel. He got so excited. Um, and, had to, and this is like a 35-year-old man wanting to take pictures with Santa um, after church. So thinking about maybe giving something, giving something away And maybe it has some sort of thing to get folks connected to come back sometime. Let's talk a little bit about Isaiah, this passage. It offers hope, especially for, it says, those who have been walking in darkness. How have we been walking in darkness or what
3: darkness have we been walking in? Just to to roll the clock back, thinking about when this passage was written, without electricity, relying on the light of the moon shrouded when there were clouds or when the moon was feeling shy in its cycles. The darkness must have felt, in a literal sense, just so overwhelming of nighttime and nightfall. You'd hear strange animal noises, other things that you weren't sure if they were human or animal or something in between. And so just the image of walking through that, maybe with a torch in hand or a candle, The depth of it, the totality of it, how smothering it can feel. I think there's so much that preachers can play with in that and in the circumstances that folks are navigating through in their lives today, where we have electricity. We even pollute the night and the night sky with how much light we shed. But so many of us, so many of the folks that we serve, are familiar with what it feels like to be surrounded by a crushing pressure or to not be able to have a clear sense of movement or next steps or. So that's that's one image that comes to mind around this text for me.
2: I think similarly the idea everything that you talked about Kenji and also how isolating that darkness probably could feel to people who were left in that idea of complete darkness with no light or I think sometimes uh, especially around holidays like Christmas how isolation can play such a huge factor into people's lives, into our lives as well, especially considering the people that we might surround ourselves with or the family that we might have. And so I think mixed in with that idea of, of walking in the darkness is also that idea of walking in isolation and how can we as a community come together to help ensure that people don't feel that isolation.
1: Yeah, I feel like when I was, you know, just reading and thinking about who's been walking in the darkness. I think when I, what comes to mind is everyone, right? Like all of us, I think as preachers or pastors or priests or church leaders, whatever, lay and ordained ministers, you know, there's this sense of an expectation of what Advent should look like and how you should prepare and all the, who has the best resources or who has, you know, what what offerings do you have? And And, and then it makes me wonder too, how isolating that is as a professional, but also bringing it down to the level of even families dealing with a lot of loss right now, Mm. Um, our country, our world, thinking of all the loss of life in in different parts of the world right now and how there's so much darkness, right? In the midst of all this brightness that we want to think is bright, but uh, what's at the really, the root is so much darkness for people right now.
3: Luce, I just want to follow up on that if I can. The darkness, I spoke about electricity, saying using the royal we, but of course that's not even in every part of the world. And thinking about what's happening in Hasa right now, the stories of ambulance drivers not having electricity, internet phones, following the light from explosions to try to find folks who needed medical treatment, that the mm. the great light and the darkness that's enveloping, there's so many pain and pressure points um, in the world right now around that. So just joining with you there.
0: I was thinking about darkness as loss of community or loss of sense of safety. And I know we've talked about it before, but encouraging folks to have like a darkest night service or a blue Christmas service. So that way, you know for folks who are grieving or experiencing loss and especially when we think about everything that's happening in the Holy Land and other areas where people are suffering. It made me think about, you know, our need for peace. And I know Isaiah talks about that there shall be endless peace. And how do we find that peace? And what's important to keep in mind if we are going to work for it?
1: I think it's just so hard right now for myself to find peace. The moments of peace for me are currently... I'm a first-time mom and I have a little toddler. She'll be turning two in January. And Sophia is really my place of finding peace, of finding joy. Hmm. I have felt recently where all this darkness, all the things that are hurtful are coming up more um, more than before. And I've noticed that even as I prepare for, for any everyday activities, right? I think since COVID, there's been a shift for me of how... I experienced life. It's like very long-term. i hmm. um, like sitting with the pain and sitting with the news of everything happening and all those who are losing lives right now, right? I, I'm trying really hard to be intentional about finding peace and finding joy this season.
3: For me, this text still is an unfulfilled promise, I think, for us, right? Hmm. The yoke of the oppressor, the end of war. These are dreams that we have not yet dreamed into full being as humankind. Joining even with some Jewish interpretations of this text that still hold the anticipation of longing for its fulfillment for those who hold to a messianic understanding of this text in the Jewish tradition, and that there is not yet peace in our world. And I wonder if what you're speaking to as well, Luz, is despite that, how do we configure our own relationship to? the chaos in the world, in our own households or hearts or communities in such a way that we can still be present, be connected. We might have a privilege of deciding how much proximity we want to have or not to these images or stories. Or, And I think these are questions to engage in community and with ritual and with rhythm, and those are things that the liturgy can provide.
2: Similarly with what Lou said too about the intentionality of it, For me, uh, personally, I think is the aspect that's probably the hardest is how are we intentionally seeking to find that peace? And can that peace be found without community? Um, And I I don't think it can. Um, I think that sometimes is where we lose a lot of that sense of peace is when we do lose the community or when it feels like we don't have the community going back to that idea of isolation and darkness. And um, how do we as a community of people Come together to help each other find that peace and how do we do that within ourselves as well and again i think it all comes back to that idea of community the idea of liturgy can help with that as well
0: cody that kind of reminded me of the lakota word one of the word we use for peace is Wola lakota which is when all things are in right relationship with ourselves with creation with each other with the creator I think that sort of maybe could be peace. And I know one of our guests in the past seasons has talked about like, we don't want cheap peace, right? Cheap peace is when everything is peaceful, but only Mm -hmm. because there's force involved or or fear or whatever that could, you know, like when we think of peacekeepers, that's the cheap peace. So what yoke or what bar across your shoulders or what rod of the oppressor do you wish God would break for you? And that could be individually or plural you, or could be us if you want to think of it that way too. Something that I'm thinking about right now is just the, I don't know if it's a rod, but it's definitely the, the commercialism that comes with this season that I wish would be broken. And I know I'm guilty of going out on Black Friday too in the past, so I, I feel like I need, to, <laughs> I need to own that, but I wish there was a way to break that.
3: I'm thinking about a couple of things, just following up on your comment about peace, this quote from Bonhoeffer that security is the opposite of peace. Mm. And the piece requires a dismantling of policing, of securitizing, of the TSA kind of feeling where there's this subjection to scrutiny that we eye one another with, as often happens after violent events or scary things in the world. Mm. The story you told about your friend being very excited about Papa Noel, Santa Claus at the church too, I think reflects just how much blending there is right now and maybe for quite a while, actually, in the church and with Christmas as a holiday and passages like these. So, you know, just providing some warm touch points for folks to be able to enter into these stories from whatever entry points they may have, having a background scripturally or culturally that may or may not be what we're expecting them to have. Hmm.
2: One of the bars or yoke that I think of is the hesitancy that I have stepping into spaces like this with other people who are involved in religion or whatever it might be in and- Coming from a sense of having a traumatic experience with that. And I think during the season, for people like myself who have had those experiences and almost have had to separate who we are authentically from what passages are saying or what the season stands for, hmm. I wish that that was something that could be unburdened from not only myself, but from many other people in my community. Um, and how I wish that we could step into these spaces without fear um, and without the idea of not belonging. And also expectations,
1: right? Like for me, expectations as a clergy person, expectations as a, a mom, expectations as a spouse, like expectations as a daughter As uh, during this season and shifting that for me to try to see what that would look like if if I were to let go of those expectations, right? That it's so easy to name, yet so hard to actually practice and to let go and to step into conversations that that are life-giving and, you know, and opening up to those opportunities because sometimes we were limited, right? Or I feel limited um, with expectations.
3: Hmm. The rod of the oppressor that I hear. Each of you talking about I can relate with as well. It's the inner rod that a little version of me is wielding inside my head that says, You need to do more. You have to produce. Mm. This has to be productive. Even now I have three Bible commentaries open on the desk here. <laughs> instead of just trusting, <laughs> trusting that Spirit will draw out some conversation with peers that I've prepared. And I imagine a lot of ministry or social service or teaching or other professionals in these ways have a version of that and something I can very much connect with and what you all shared.
0: Hmm. That rod of sort of the, the, I always had to be done, the grind culture, all of that type of thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sinister. I was thinking, Cody, about what you said about folks who've experienced church trauma and how. Many times that happens, right? I almost think on the Sunday before Christmas or even maybe before Advent, part of the preaching should be like, hey, when someone sits in, quote unquote, your pew, let it go. We're trying to be welcoming to people. Or when somebody comes, like maybe we need to put signs on the door to say this is a safe place for LGBTQIA2S people, as long as it is, right? Only say that if it is. Or this is a safe place for folks of color. Our Indian church in Rapid City was started because my grandpa came on Christmas Eve and was told he couldn't sit down and had to go stand in the back because he was brown and So he left and started a church that was a safe space for brown people. Last question about Isaiah. He ends by saying the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What do you think is the zeal of the Lord?
2: I think for me, oftentimes I associate the word zeal with something very negative. Um, I wonder if that that probably happens. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I know um, sometimes it can be looked at as like somebody who is very zealous, like, ambitious, almost, or maybe a little annoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what this passage is particularly talking about is maybe like what the root of that word zeal like really means, which is this idea of, you know, like enthusiasm and like this idea of almost excitement, you know, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, you know, that it's not only something that this passage is saying, like he's going to do, it's something that this passage is saying, almost that he wants to do, or almost that there's an enthusiasm, excitement from the Lord of hosts to do this. Um, it's kind of how I've interpreted that and what that means.
3: Hmm.
0: I wonder if it's us too. Like if we, you know, like we are the people who, I know we've talked about that a lot of times, like we are the hands and feet of Christ. If if we're called to be the ones that bring justice or if we're called to be the ones that carry out this work, maybe not in a zealous way, but in a healthy right relationship <laughs> way. <laughs>
3: This word zealous, I have a similar association that it's evocative of passion, even of passion dominating rational faculties. But I'm also thinking about this, the zealots operating at the time of Christ who maybe took up arms in pursuit of what they believe to be right against oppression. Mm. Mm. But I'm also thinking about this line from Martin Luther King Jr. I think it was in his letter from a Birmingham jail. You know, he says, I am an extremist. It's just a choice of being an extremist between for love or for hate so how can we be creative extremists for love or if we are zealots can we be zealots for the kind of inclusion you're talking about cody or maybe i'm doing too much to try to rehabilitate a you know a term that we want to retire but Mm.
1: Mm. it just ends with that right the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this i interpret mainly as just thinking of like yeah The Lord will make this happen, right? And it may not look the way I think it needs to look. It it can look differently, but it is still the Lord doing this work, right? I think it ends in a very hopeful manner there.
0: So let's shift. And there's actually two options. Well, there's several options for Christmas. We have like three different lectionary possibilities. They include Luke and John. Let's start with John, because that's the one I struggle with the most. He talks about light and darkness in some of his passages. And I know, Kenji, you touched on that too. How can we talk about light and darkness in a way that honors our siblings of color and doesn't perpetuate racism or shadism or colorism?
3: I think this is a tough one. I'd really love to see, I'm a member of the Episcopal Church, and we have a, a interdenominational representation here on the podcast today. I'd love to see our tradition really reckon with through committees or commissions making recommendations around this for liturgy and for worship. I think part of what our pastoral sensitivity should be is contextualizing light and darkness as physical phenomenon, although perhaps we also risk stumbling into ableism or, or privileging sightedness or something like this. Mm. I think talking in our churches about whiteness and the power of that and Maybe even suggesting that what the biblical writers might have meant by darkness, as James Cohn and others have said, could be um, resonant with this idea of whiteness or the dominance of whiteness or the myopia, although maybe we're straying into visual metaphors too strongly again there. Um, I'd be very curious to hear others' thoughts about this because I think, I think it's a sticky, challenging thing that we need to lean into.
1: I mean, it makes me think of general convention coming up next summer. You know, these conversations and this change can take. Place, but when I think of my own context and just my own experience of the church and of this passage, is more of just trying to figure out exactly what John is trying to say and trying to understand how we present that to others. Right, so making it easier for people to understand would require a lot of conversation, uh, a relationship to kind of understand each other and know and know what these things mean. Right, because as Kenji was saying, this. This can open, go on, and, and bring something else up, right? Other things will come up as we open up to this kind of conversation.
3: I'm thinking about the blind theologian John Hall, who talked a lot about this. I think it's the psalm. It says, darkness and light are alike to thee, you know, that there's so many more resources. I think you're exactly right that we'll be able to engage if we lean into these conversations.
0: I think contextualizing is always helpful, like saying that this isn't what it means it, and talking about it as like loss of relationship or, or sense of isolation. And then I also think about darkness as a time of like healing or being in the womb or, you know, all of those pieces. We do sweat lodge in the dark. That's a very healing and rejuvenating time. But then also thinking about what light is, you know, John talks about that life was the light of all people. In that sense, I think of light as a time of growth, right? A, a transformation or a time of change and, and thinking about it
1: growing up in my experience of the church or of scriptures scripture is that's it it's it, and now of course i'm at a place now as an adult where i can sit and wrestle with scripture and what it really means right but growing up that was not my experience my experience was yeah the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it and it's in this negative concept of darkness right hmm. i think it's been now as i've gotten older as i've had these conversations i've been able to wrestle with what they mean to me now or, or what god is saying to the people
0: i always struggle with john it's he's definitely not my favorite gospel because i feel like he's just very i have to remember that he's kind of like poetic and, and a little catech. What advice do you have for making this passage more digestible for
3: your congregation? I'm amused by your John uh, allergy, (laughs) because I find the text poetic and uh, very, that right brain, you know, compared to the Lucan kind of account. Yeah. The use of logos and playing with this thing that people thought they knew, like Christmas. We think we know the story of it, and then breaking it open in new ways. I think the most powerful example I heard of a preacher working with this text was in a panel about gun violence that Willie Jennings was on in my hometown of Chicago, a city that sees a fair amount of gun violence. Mm -hmm. And he was critiquing the American fetishization of guns and gun culture. And he said, In the beginning was the weapon, and the weapon was with God, and the weapon was God. And he went on in this way. And for all of us there, I don't think just me, he broke open this passage in a a way that helped me understand what I think John was trying to do for
2: John's audience,
3: or the author of John, I should say, at that time. Hmm.
2: I don't have a congregation, (laughs) nor will I be trying to make this digestible to probably anybody else. But I think for me, like... Going back to that idea of contextualization is always super helpful. Um, when I, especially whenever there's like a passage like this that is kind of filled with so many metaphors and so much back and forth, you know, was the word and the word was with God and the word what like what does all of that mean exactly? And so I think going through those passages is really that. First of all, the contextualization as well as kind of like breaking it down piece by piece. I think going through the whole thing at once is kind of a lot sometimes. So even. Breaking it down into different pieces or different sections, even within that one passage, is usually really helpful for me. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Shaniqua, I'm kind of like you. Um, I, you know, as I as I'm reading it, yeah, it's it's so poetic, and I'm like, yeah, you're playing with the words, but you know, you're also playing with my feelings here. But, you know, you're leaving me a little more confused than when I started. Right? It just comes up a lot for me, especially because as English as a second language for me in Spanish, it's so different, right? When I read it the first time in English and then it's read in Spanish, I'm like, oh, that's what that meant. You know, all Mm. of the cognates, all of the uh, these words just kind of get mixed. And and when I'm doing the first read of it and if I'm doing it in English, all of the things come up, right? All of the, the things I don't know, I don't understand. It confuses me. So the way he plays with the words does sometimes get to me. As I hear it, and to have a conversation with someone or to make it easier for a congregation regardless, it's speaking to what's presented, right? I think that the whole story is in in this passage too. Uh, the story of, of pain, of death, and rejection, but also full of grace and truth. And I think there's this a way to say, this is a story, and and we sit with it, and it's told in different ways, and that's the beauty of it, that we get to think about it, and we get to uh, talk about it, and and agree or disagree with the text.
0: I'm glad you brought up language, Luce. I I remember asking that question of someone else a while back. She did translation from Chinese to English, and she said in their Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao, like, and it was like, that's a really neat way, and Makes me want to look and see how we translated that in Lakota, too, to see what what that was. John says, his own people did not accept him, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. What do you think is the significance of this part of that passage for those folks who aren't accepted or who are oppressed or who've experienced
3: that?
2: For myself and my own personal journey, as somebody who is part of the LGBTQIA2S plus community, who came out while I was at a church working in ministry and who felt as though I was not accepted by my people, these people that I had spent so much time with and who I had developed relationships with and had spent time in you know what we call those sacred spaces and moments. And then... Having those people not accept me and cast me out. And this passage to me is a a reminder, something that's hard to remember, is that those people who do not accept me are not as important as the sacred who does. And understanding that concept and that there is community in these spaces with other people And that's a hard thing to really accept. It's a hard thing to remind myself of because that feeling lasts in moments, even in moments like this, where I am in a space of people who are a part of a church or a part of a faith community. It brings back those feelings of feeling a cast aside, feeling othered, feeling unaccepted for who I am and who my identity is. And I think what John is saying here and what this passage is, is helpful for those of us who felt like we have not been accepted or we have been cast aside as remembering that there's still space in the sacred to feel as though we are of the sacred or of God.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I thank you for sharing some of your experiences, Cody. I can definitely connect with some of that from my own experience. And I'm just thinking about how the passage starts with his own people didn't welcome him, but those who did welcome him. But it starts with uh, the experience of rejection and loss. As humans, feel you know, those stick to us, those cleave to us so much more closely. Sometimes, hmm. or we remember those first over the good experiences or the um, the community that we have built. To what you were saying earlier, Cody, and how important that is too. So you know, just seeing the order of the text in that way um, was striking, and. I was thinking about the way that this gospel, this is a poem or a hymn maybe, or John is more of a sensitive soul in a way that is hard to digest, I think, for us and for our our communities. But John has also been used uniquely among the gospels as an anti-Judaic or anti-Semitic bludgeon at times. And I think having some sensitivity to his own people didn't accept him or the ways that this text will go on to at times, lend itself to conversations around anti-Semitism or um, anti-Judaism in ways that I think went beyond the original scope of the writer's intent or context is something for us to be aware of as, um, as we're engaging John's gospel.
0: Mm. So, you know, a lot of us hear the story about Jesus looking for room and there's no room after him. Who in our communities is there no room for today? Or who in our church is there no room for? that maybe we need to really think about?
1: Sometimes I think I struggle with naming things, naming truths that are hard for me to process. And, and so I think this question is, is one that, that is hard for me because I'm in a, I serve at a church that's in Midtown. So it comes with everything that you would expect being in a Midtown uh, or Downtown setting of a, of a major city. To me, so many people come to mind um, when I think of who in our communities is there no room for? Who in our church is there no, we're not making room for them, right? I will be intentional about naming for us as our neighbors who are our unhoused neighbors here, Hmm. uh, where we are working with other organizations trying to figure out how to support, how to best coexist with each other, knowing that. We all have a place here and we're all welcome here. I've noticed the huge need now since uh, maybe last year we had, uh, we'll sit outside to kind of welcome voters during election day, which we are also wanting to hold the church and the communities and our people responsible, right? So in saying, go vote, go out and vote. So we have this election day, like a, a little table where we greet people and we welcome them. We have snacks and we have water. and. And what I've noticed from a year ago to this year was the the different conversations that I I was having with those who stopped by. Yes, there were some voters, but really it was mainly our unhoused neighbors who got a snack and and we got to talk and and have a conversation. But that started another conversation with the vicar of Lord of the streets, which is a church in our diocese that serves our unhoused neighbors. And so talking to him and and just speaking about the current realities of the different shelters and and the different emails that he's getting and the different feedback about how unpleasant it is for some folks to see and to witness the people that are around our neighborhood and realizing that you know we've called different shelters and we've called different places and and they're all full like there's no place so how where do you, what do you do you know what do you say to to our unhoused neighbors and so I think that that's really right now something that's that's been on my mind a lot is there room for them in our communities and is there room for them in our churches right like we want to be we want to be nice but you know we also want to keep people comfortable yeah and so I've been wrestling with that uh, wrestling with what that means and of course I know as as a Person of color, as a Latina, as a you know, una mujer, I know, I know what that means to feel left out, right? Mm. I experience that on a daily basis, and so I just think of, of the people that I serve, how hard it is right now, and I'm sure you all experience it in your own context as well. But all of it, right? Like the brokenness of our education system. Like I think of my spouse, who's a teacher in HISD, which is the seventh, I think, largest school district in the country, something like that. And, and, I, and I think of my parents who are have no health insurance and navigating those those systems that are so hard for people. That is really what's for me coming up when I think of that question.
2: I, again, think of my community, the LGBTQIA2S plus community. And sometimes it feels like there is no room at the church for us. Mm. I think particularly thinking about my trans friends and family who feel even more as though they are othered. Um, And I think that Especially in the community that I'm a part of, that it feels as though they, it doesn't seem like there is room for them. Um, it doesn't seem like there is room for them as people, as humanity, particularly when looking at the church as well. And so I, I wonder too, like, especially during this time as we talk about Christmas and Advent, like those who do want to engage in that community, in the sacred space, and, and with God and, and fellow people, how. How are they finding that in communities where it's really difficult for them to have that access?
3: One of my favorite poems is by W.H. Auden, who has a relationship with my tradition, the Episcopal Church and our prayer book and the Psalter or the collection of Psalms. And his poem, Musée des beaux which is a reflection on human suffering, has this line that says, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. All the systems of the world and life keep churning and just kind of look away from the crisis or the disaster that's happening. So I'm imagining this when Mary and Joseph in the story are told that there's no room for them. At the end, we're facing a crisis of housing for refugee, for migrant populations in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Similar to the governor in the text from Luke, we have Governor Abbott who's declaring, everyone needs to go to this place. I'm going to put vulnerable people on buses, on planes. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care if there's a place for you to stay when you show up and knock there and the innkeeper in the story or the social services or systems for housing and the places that folks are seeking care they're all following the law they're all you know they're not breaking anything but as a result of these political these evil and these unjust political decisions people are put into tr- into circumstances of tremendous vulnerability having to give birth in you know, uh, a stable Having to sleep on a police station floor, as is the case here in Chicago for so many of, of the new residents to our city. From the Japanese American experience, there's historic resonances our communities have to being housed in horse stables or the horse tracks during the incarceration period or experience. Hmm. Just circling back to the text for a moment, I had a seminary professor, Jorg Rieger, he's now he's at Vanderbilt now, but he used to say he loved this passage because. Where did God send the heavenly chorus of angels, not to the Imperial Senate of Rome, not to Congress, not to the halls of power, but to a field of shepherds and of people tending sheep, people of disreputable reputation in those times? And one of the commentators on this text I read for today asked, were the sheep afraid of the angels too? you know, what did the sheep think as they saw the, the angels come there? And I thought, what a great question and what a great reflection of God's concern for the least of the least of the least. As you were talking, Luce, your idea
0: about there's no room for conversation. And I feel like our churches seem to be so polarized about, you know, like they're either a very liberal church or a very conservative church mm-hmm. and da-da-da. And I feel like if we had more room for conversation, maybe we could find more middle ground, but folks just kind of, go to the pole that they align with and don't always have that. Kenji, let's run with this thought about the shepherds and why do you think Luke tells the story of the shepherds? And then the second part of the question is kind of like, who are the shepherds of today?
3: The shepherds represent a lot of different things potentially for us today. I spoke to the reputation that folks in this profession may have had in those times as potentially criminal or scandalous or just being kind of a, 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 quote, dangerous element. We might connect the shepherds with folks who are experiencing prejudice or discrimination today with agricultural workers who don't have healthcare, housing, security, who, as Jesus said of himself, lay their heads down to rest wherever they they need to without shelter, without ability, having to travel extensively. Shepherds might be folks who are outside of the folds of the kind of resources and privilege that folks who don't have to be standing in the fields have access to. Hmm.
1: Sometimes it's just those people we don't expect to show up in the ways that they do. Shepherds living in the field, keeping watch by night. They may not have felt capable or ready, yet here is their major role right in the
3: story.
0: I was thinking about the unhoused folks. They're kind of on the outside, right on the periphery. We often think of them as being unclean or whatever, all the same ideas that maybe came with the shepherds. And I know here in Sioux Falls, there's a lot of people complain about the native folks. And a lot of the unhoused folks are native folks in downtown. And I remember being asked by, I won't say who, but one of our people in city government that was like, what can we do about the Indian problem? And I was like, that was just how it was phrased. I was like, wow, knowing that I'm an Indian person. And he asked me that question. (laughs)
3: Let me jump into Shaniqua, if I can, this association of people of color with not being human or being animals or being subhuman. We've heard this rhetoric in the Israel's war um, on civilians right now. We've heard this in histories of people of color in the U S and this, the shepherds have an association to animals may smell of them. They work with them. They lift them with care. When one of their sheep have hooves, I don't know hooves get stuck between two rocks and that they're sent to a place where Jesus is born amidst animals, breaking apart this distinction of human and non-human is powerful. I think.
0: Hmm. So where have you encountered the sacred or where have you like the shepherds received a sign and had it confirmed?
2: I think I most often feel as though I encounter the sacred in other people. I don't know if that sounds like a cop out or like a woo woo answer, but um, I do. I feel like for me, the sacred is so often like found in other people and moments of Running into a stranger and and feeling encouraged, or receiving a message from somebody that I don't know that is encouraging and that is helpful and beneficial, and you know the hey, keep going, like you're doing good work. You're I like I really appreciate what you're doing, and um, not that it's all about that, but feeling that encounter of that almost like that sacred moment, that sacred time and space of somebody that you don't really have that connection with, giving you that sense of encouragement and that sense of almost belonging, even validation of, you know, you're important. I'm glad you're here. Um, and I feel like those are the moments that I really do encounter the sacred and I really appreciate them.
1: I've encountered the, the sacred in, in wrestling with scripture and preparing for the different seasons of life That I find myself in, right? So, for example, when I was pregnant, the way that I read this story was completely different than how I've read it this time Mm -hmm. around. You know, where there's this now this experience of where I can find myself somewhere in the story of that expectation, the waiting, the arrival of Mary, lonely. And so, I've, I've recently tried to be just very aware of what scripture is doing and encountering God in that. That, of course, includes other people, right? My community, the people that I worship with, the people that I serve. uh, But it's been very, just a different, amazing experience that if I had not lived it, I would not understand it the way I understand it today. Then I start to think of, yeah, the story of Jesus being born, but also there's a story of birthing that we don't always talk about, um, and and also how that affects those who are yearning to birth and don't get that experience, right? And I think it makes me more aware of those realities. I feel like the the sign of encountering the sacred for me has been in that, and noticing and listening to the stories of others uh, and also telling my story or telling the story of what, I, what I've seen.
3: I can think of a time I felt connected to the sacred somewhat recently. The setting where I serve has a, a large organ, and uh, every week our organist plays, and there's an event called Tea and Pipes that's hosted for free for community members. And some of the um, staff and a lot of the students we serve and others will come to sit listen to this huge old machine this instrument this this organ feels like a living organ tremble and quake and play music and we're not talking with each other usually sometimes there'll be like conversation after but just having that time for the music to wash over us and for us to kind of dream through while awake the parts of our days that have been hard to digest or similar to the ignatian practice of the examen or things like this feeling your whole body tremble with the power of a sound from that instrument. I would call it a sacred experience. Hmm.
0: What good news do our communities need to hear or who needs to hear good news of great joy today?
1: I think the image for me that comes up from the, this gospel is, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid.
3: Hmm. Uh,
1: and I think that we are in a place where, a lot of the emotions, a lot of the feelings that come up for people are very driven by fear. And and it's easy for us to say, you know, don't be afraid and and it's okay. But I think hearing it over and over can be good news for people. Sometimes we don't want to use scripture so much for whatever reason. We We don't, you know, we don't incorporate it into our daily conversations. But I feel like If we shared that with people, I think people would start to believe it, to live into
2: that, right? Our communities really just need to hear that there is good news. (laughs) Going back to our conversation earlier, I think one of those places of good news is that there is room for them. Hmm. There is a space for them. They have a place. They are welcome. They are loved. They are cherished, and they're part of however we want to phrase it, but they are part of that, the sacredness of those sacred spaces. And I think a lot of our communities really need to hear that and need to understand that. And um, I think of all of the communities we've talked about and how a lot of communities just need that reassurance. And also I think the good news of, you know, that there is meaning in your life and who you are as a person a little bit of what that this passage resonates in that is, you know, saying to those shepherds who the angels coming to them and saying, I have good news for you. And you're the people of all the people that we could tell this to you're the people that we're going to tell it to. Some of our communities need to be reassured in of that as well.
3: Hmm.
1: For
2: me, I just
1: thought of, you know, the angels in disguise, right? Because I'm just thinking of the image Shaniqua, of like, yeah, you're right. If Angels really are biblically accurate. Like they're they're that's creepy, you know, scary. And, and I think like and, and realizing like, yeah, sometimes it's scary. And and sometimes the people that are gonna shake things up, the people that are gonna make a difference, or they are are gonna change your life, and you're not even ready for it, appear as those angels that you're just kind of like, oh, mm, it's a bit much, or I'm not ready for it. So I don't know, that image just kind of came up as Cody was speaking, too, about that.
0: I was thinking about the good news would be that we all are made and reflect the image of God, right? And so you, mm-hmm. I always say, you know, when you look into somebody else's eyes, even if you look in the mirror, you're seeing an image of God, whatever that might be, which means, you know, God is black and white and brown and tan and gay and straight and bi and pan and you know, all the different I didn't mean that to rhyme, but, but all the different things, right? <laughs> and I know maybe some people would think of this as heresy, but that means God is abled and God is disabled also. And God is tall and short and fat and skinny and you know, all the different things, thinking about all of those pieces, right? What tips do you have for preaching this text or this lectionary or preaching Christmas period? Kenji you made me think about what it, what would it be like to preach from the sheep's perspective like preach as like the gathered mm-hmm. community of sheep What well, well, I wonder I would love to hear that sermon or maybe preach I've heard sermons preach from the shepherd's perspective but and then Luz, what about from Mary's perspective I'm sure it's been done before but really thinking about you know what that might be like and the birth pangs and all the mess you know whatever and joy that comes with all of that
1: mm-hmm. Like I'm afraid to answer though because Kenji over there over there with his five commentaries on the sign.
3: <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, it was three. Now it's one.
1: <laughs> three. <laughs> um, I guess for me, my tips or, or my advice it would be to sit with it and to wrestle with scripture. There's a lot at stake. I do. I do strongly believe that. You know, there is so much at stake when we are really sitting with scripture, right? So. We are to be held accountable and to be responsible with the gifts that we are given. And so, for me, it's like sit with scripture, wrestle with it, get a good two or three commentaries. What have others said about this? There's so much out there that that has been said and done. And so, at the end of the day, how does it speak to you? And how mm. is it transformative for the moments that we are living today and the realities of our people?
3: I'm moved in the text by the naming of political leaders and the decisions they're making and shading the impact those are having on real people. Hmm. That's something I know a lot of preachers wrestle with. In my hometown of Chicago, do we preach openly about Rahm Emanuel, now ambassador to Japan, and his cover-up of the murder of Laquan McDonald? Do we, in the 2016 or 2020 elections, we're coming up to an election year, How do we wrestle with the political and not cheaply engage with it? But I think this text provides some texture for us to engage with as we're engaging the text, as we're thinking about how to preach it. I loved your question, uh, Shaniqua, about the sheep. What were they feeling? What did they think? They're so cold, vulnerable, and afraid. And what a scandal that the incarnation in Jesus in the process of childbearing and childbirth is that God was subjected to that same frailty. Hmm. I love Luz's suggestions for seeing what others have made of the text, looking at your own community, preparing and letting yourself off the hook for having to be the most brilliant voice or person or to say something completely new and leaning on community with some tradition.
2: Oh, amen. Amen. I think that both of those suggestions are great. I really just like that idea. I really liked Kinji, your idea of the kind of that, political statement that's made? um, And how do we church communities engage in that process, especially when policies are taking away the rights of people or oppressing people, creating even stronger barriers for accessibility? What is the church's ultimate responsibility? And, you know, as we think about the whole idea of Christmas and kind of what that idea meant to, um, you know, the people of that time, how do we reflect that now into our current time? You know, what, what are the things that we're waiting for, hoping for? What are those oppressions that are with us that we are waiting to see and hear that those are gone and that something has come, something has been born that has removed that oppression as well. Hmm.
0: Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast. I appreciate you sharing your stories and your wisdom and your ideas. I'm filled with gratitude. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash Beloved community. Thanks to our guests, Kenji, Luce, and Cody. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you experienced good news of great joy today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. That's all for this season of Prophetic Voices, but join us in 2024 for our Ash Wednesday and Holy Week season. Until next time, let your light shine.
4: For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians, and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at IAM.EC slash Good Friday Offering or text GFO to 91999. Good Friday Offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.